So as you guys know, I recently went up to Boston and I interviewed Ray Maliazzi. Ray Maliazzi of Car Talk. The long-running NPR talk show about cars. The long-running beloved talk show about cars. I'm, I'm like envisioning Doug in his childhood bedroom in his dad's house in like Needham or wherever you grew up in Massachusetts. <laughs> and, and <or> Massachusetts <laughs> and but over. yeah, I'll allow it. You're shirtless and you're sweating and you're covered in mosquitoes. You're doing Tai Chi. You're preparing to head up the Charles River into the heart of darkness. Yeah. Confronting your Colonel Kurtz click or clack. Yeah. Whichever well, one he is. <laughs> actually, I think they never revealed who was click and who was clack in the many years of the show. Well, it... It wasn't exactly like all that. Let me play just one tiny little clip of my interview with Ray. The horror. You know, so my brother hated cars. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, my okay. God. That voice saying that is incredible. Yeah, I want that as my, uh, my like, ringtone, basically. <laughs> yeah. This is such a coup for the war on cars. I mean, you know, this is like a, a minor candidate standing on stage debating Barack Obama. I mean, not to take anything away from you, Doug. Oh, no, like... I, I was like, <laughs> I was very humbled to be standing there in his presence. He's a very smart, a very funny guy. And also, I'm a bit of a fan. Right. So his brother hated cars. Is there yeah, more to delve that? into this. He did They're... car talk for 20 years. How's that <laughs> yeah, work? That, that may not be news to some of their listeners. It might be news to some of ours. And there's more. Uh, and it was kind of odd that we did the show together for so many years. But he hated the idea of cars consuming our lives, our money, clogging up the streets, polluting the air, all, all the things that you hate, too. It's almost like a mission statement for the war on cars, right? right? Yeah. Um, it, it's really quite amazing. So we're going to find out more about what Ray Maliazzi had to say about cars, about driving. And there are more shockers to come. This is The War on Cars, a podcast about cars, car culture, and all the ways automobiles have shaped our world and our relationships for better or for worse. But mostly for worse. <laughs> and, and no, we are not Click and Clack, the Tappet Brothers. I am Doug Gordon. I'm here with Sarah Goodyear and Aaron Napperstek. Hello. Hey. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> and on this episode, The War on Cars, yes, The War on Cars meets Car Talk. Tell me I don't need to buy a new timing belt. No, no I don't, you don't, I don't need to new, buy a new timing belt, no. Oh, good. No, I don't think so. Uh, you need to buy a new engine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you could, uh, obviously, there. The first thing I have to admit is that I really loved that show because I hadn't listened to it until I moved to Maine in the mid-90s, and I was having to adjust from being a New Yorker who never had to rely on a car to being someone who was completely enslaved to a car. And I turned on the radio one Saturday, and I heard these guys talking, and I was like, oh, my God, they're saying things that I need to know about this horrible new dependency that I have been roped into uh, just by moving outside of New York City. And well, I'll just read a tweet of mine to give you my stance on car talk okay. which is, um, from June 22nd, 2013 at Napperstack, 10 a.m. on a Saturday and WNYC gives free reign to a couple of guys with thick Boston accents cackling about cars. Where's the outrage, NYC? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> 
I was so angry. Oh, I was so angry oh, at Cartoff. Oh, man. Imagine, the, imagine our lives back then that the worst thing that you could imagine <laughs> happening in the world was that Car Talk oh, was know. still airing on WNYC. So, I would like to go back to those times. And also, like, the, the slap at the Boston accent. Did you ever complain about Michael Bloomberg's Boston accent? I, no. Okay. No. All right. I, just, okay. I thought it was very, it just really it offended me in some deep way. I did start off liking Car Talk. You can't not like them. But at some point, or in that era... Um, I was just like, why Why are New Yorkers being subjected to these guys? Why so, are we talking about cars all the I'm time? I'm going to stick up for them because I always loved them and it was just really fun to listen to. They're just, their personality is shown through in such an amazing way. I loved it. I feel like this is a scandal. Brooklyn Spoke was listening to Car Talk all that time. Okay, yeah. well. While advocating um, for bikes. We're going to find out much more about what happened when Doug confronted his childhood and adulthood idols. But first, we need to get some business out of the way. A big thanks to everyone who has supported us on Patreon so far. Uh, if you want to chip in, do not uh, go to the shameless commerce department of cartalk.com. Head on over to thewaroncars.org. Click on Donate. Make your contribution. And we will thank you with all kinds of rewards, including official War on Cars stickers. Also, our famous buttery soft War on Cars t-shirts are available at cottonbureau.com. We'll put a link in the show notes, but you can go to Cotton Bureau, do a search for the War on Cars, and you can order yours today. Okay, so to get started here, you know, we have a lot of listeners outside of the United States, and, and we should explain what a phenomenon car talk was and still is actually people are still out there listening to it so what what was car talk all right so car talk ran from 1986 till today it's still running in sort of best of car talk episodes on lots of npr stations around the country um and you know on its surface level it was you could call in and if you had a problem with your car these two guys ray and tom who owned an auto garage in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And and our actual brothers. And our actual brothers would answer your questions and try to diagnose your problems with your car and give suggestions on how to fix it. But... But it's so much more than that because, like, if you describe it that way, it it misses what was really brilliant about it, which was that it was about the relationship between the two of them. It was about their ability to connect with the callers. And often the callers had things about, you know, my husband says it's this, you know, we need to get our transmission fixed. And I think it's just this. And, and they would get right into sort of the emotional, um, the emotional stuff that was going on with people and, and really make that emotional connection with listeners. And it was very, it was very right brain and left brain, right? So, like as Sarah said, they, you had this very emotional piece. They were really able to connect and um, talk about people's relationships and what was really going on underneath the surface. But they're also these. They were MIT engineers. Yeah, they're like incredibly smart, brilliant, brilliant yeah. guys yes. who could like really. They could probably fix like a rocket engine, but they're right. out there telling you how to fix your car. Yeah, and I think that's why so many people listened and why it still resonates today. The question could be, is it okay to do this? Is it morally, ethically yeah, correct? Yeah, that's, and, a good, that's a good way to put it. Is it morally, ethically okay to do it? Well, see, in the North End, those questions don't come up. <laughs> right. It's a simple, it's simple. And those who question disappear. <laughs> you want your tires or you don't, you don't want your tires. And it's very easy to look at it objectively if you don't live there. 
Right. But if you live there, I think the law of the jungle has to apply. Yeah. The law of the jungle. See, I think that if it snows and and you shovel out and you put the lawn chair, then it's an absolute given. It's your spot. It's your spot. Okay. So one of the brothers, Tom, died in 2014. You went up to Boston, Doug. You spoke with Ray, the remaining Car Talk brother. And it feels like this was a pretty unique opportunity for us to try to really delve into car culture. I mean, these guys were the voice of car culture for a good two decades. Like in the 90s and 2000s, these guys were all about cars and the American relationship to cars. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I was thinking of is that we do this podcast because we hate cars. <laughs> like We see all of the things that are wrong with cars and the way that cars have been forced upon society, the way we've built our world around cars. They did their show because they loved cars and they worked with cars and they understood the ways in which people had these interesting relationships with their cars. And so I asked him to kind of explain that a little bit. Do we love our cars or do we hate our cars or is it a little bit of both? Can you explain that relationship we have with driving? Oh, I, I think people who live in New York probably hate their cars for the most part because if you ever move it out of your spot, you're done for. Right. Unless you can afford the luxury of a parking space, which I guess is pretty expensive. Yeah. And, and people who live, you know, so my brother hated cars. And yet he, and for years and years, I tried to convince him that if he didn't live in Cambridge, and wasn't able to get around with public transportation or by walking, he'd have to have a car that was reliable. Right. So he he, he forced himself to have a car because he felt it would give him some kind of authority, you know, if he had a car. But he, he had a jalopy, like a 63 Dodge Dart. And right. Then he, then he had a, a 74. He went up a year. Went from 63, <laughs> went up a year and a decade, went to a 74 Chevrolet Caprice convertible. Yeah. All of his cars were jalopies, and none of them would have made it to the state line. I mean, they were, it was a risk whenever he drove it. But he was convinced that that's as good a car as anyone ever needed. And he couldn't understand that, you know, there were people that drive like 100 miles a day to get to work. Right. You know, so so he, uh, he had a hard time, you know, just accepting that. But he, he was against cars because of all the, the things they do to our lives and to our world. And I agree, I agree on all of those points. Wow. I'm kind of stunned and I feel like crying almost because it's like the idea that Tom was sort of held hostage by this car talk persona to the extent that he had to he had to force himself to buy a car. It's like as if one of us was being forced to buy a car and drive around just to like maintain some kind of street cred or something that's so well, I mean, sad. I think you're making it sound like a Twilight Zone episode <laughs> where like a guy <laughs> hates driving so much but like has to do I he genuinely loved working with cars and I think if you listen to the show a lot, right? That's shown through and he loved the problem-solving aspect of it, I'm sure. But yeah, he lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He very famously I think got around by bike, by bus and it was Ray who I think was more of the expert on cars, but they just had this great interplay that really worked well together. So, I th But I think he had this awareness of what cars did to the world and okay. to people. Okay, but you know, there, I feel like there's a little, maybe a little revisionist history or something going on there because, you know, they, these guys had an enormous platform. I mean, they make like our podcast look just like a speck of dust, you know, and they, they were gigantic. Everybody listened to car talk for like 20 years. And, you know, I think they had an opportunity to do more 
to really try to critique car culture and critique our entire sort of society that pushes people into cars that they lived in the city, Boston, that was most wrecked by highway building and the sprawl from its original historic form to what it is today. And you never really heard them talk that much about that. But well, they did. What they did do was, uh, I think that they had a really strong campaign against SUVs. Like they did, right? Am I right, Doug? Yeah, yeah these yeah. guys were actually. I mean, d- these guys were quite radical for given their platform and given their passion for cars. So yes, in two thousand two, thereabouts, they started a campaign called Live Larger, Drive Smaller. It was an anti-SUV campaign. They were basically saying nobody needs a car that gets five miles to the gallon. That's a rollover risk. And they sold bumper stickers and all the stuff. And they prided themselves on telling people you don't need a car that is basically a tank to get around. And here's what Ray had to say about how that began and what got that started. To be fair, I'm sure my brother was the one who started this campaign. And what bothered him was that as these things got bigger and bigger and more visible, you were threatened by them because you were just overwhelmed with their enormity and the fact that you were now very vulnerable if you were driving anything but one of them. And I remember one day I was test driving a uh, a Mazda Miata. You know, it's kind of a nice little car. And, yeah. and, and I was driving on Route 93 here outside of Boston, and I was passed simultaneously by two semis, one on the left and one on the right. And I felt like I was in some kind of tunnel of death. Yeah. You know, and if anything went wrong. Miata sandwich. Miata death. Death by Miata. Death by whatever it was. Yeah. I was going to die. And I kind of froze for a minute. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether to speed up, slow down, (laughs) close my eyes. And I think that, that, that people who drive reasonably sized cars probably have an occasion every week to feel like, oh, my God, I'm going to die because I'm driving something sensible like a Toyota Prius. Mm-hmm. That clip does remind me of that period of the early 2000s when SUVs started to pl- proliferate and how shocking that actually was. That, you know, it's something that feel is actually pretty normal now. You just see SUVs everywhere. But it was weird and shocking when they first started appearing on streets in large numbers. Like, why were people getting these enormous tanks? Yeah, I mean, if you remember the Ford Explorer, right? There was a huge rollover risk, and there was all of this stuff. There was the famous Dateline NBC thing that later turned out to be faked, but, you know, about the dangers of some of these cars. And there did seem like there was this little bit of pushback against them because of how dangerous they were, especially to other drivers. Like Ray was saying, if you're in a moderate or a small size vehicle, and you're in a crash with one of these things, you're as good as dead. Yeah, I mean, I used to drive a Ford Explorer uh, when I lived in Maine, and we actually needed it. We lived on a dirt road, and you know, we needed four-wheel drive. It was the vehicle that seemed sensible, and it was also like tiny compared to what they are now. This was like in the early 90s, and it was so small, and yet I still felt like I was potentially endangering other people with that right. vehicle. I was very aware of that. It was it was really upsetting, actually. But I mean, look where we are now. You know, it's like in December, Chevy, Ford, and Nissan all announced that they're totally phasing out manufacturing of cars. Yeah, I think there was some picture that just trucks. circulated around of a Ford plant somewhere rolling out like the last 
Ford I think Taurus was, or something. Th- like I think that. it was the last Chevy Cruze. Oh, actually. the last Chevy Cruze, right? Yeah. Rolling right. off the assembly line. They've, they're completely. I think Chrysler Fiat is abandoning midsize and small vehicles. It's all SUVs and yeah, light and even in the luxury market, which luxury sedans were sort of still a you know a status symbol for a long time, and now even the luxury brands have been compelled to sell these SUVs, and they're doing gonzo business selling, you know, the Porsche Cayenne or whatever, these things, not only are they SUVs for people who just blatantly don't need SUVs, they do not live on a dirt road, but they also are just insanely expensive. Rolls-Royce just rolled out its own SUV. I mean, oh, no, I had not seen yes, that. Yes, the Rolls-Royce Cullinan SUV is massive and it will not be ignored. All right, can we think of a yeah. more Freudian tagline for a car than it's massive and it will not be ignored? Like, come on, guys. We know price. what you're doing there. We're not, you're not kidding anyone. But, you know, so this raises the question, though. It's like if, okay, we're fighting the war on cars and, you know, we're relatively tiny. And here we're Tom and Ray, click and clack, car talk, massive platform for two decades. They fought the war on SUVs and they've absolutely definitively lost. Yeah, I mean, they lost that battle, and he even kind of lost the battle within his own brood. Oh, and man. Yeah, here's here's another thing that he had to say about that. So my, my younger son uh, and his wife, who just had their second child, had a nice, reasonably sized Honda CRV, and they decided they needed something bigger. You know, they're going to have to have a—they get two kids, both of carriage age now. Right. So they're going to have to have one of those double-wide carriages and, you know, all the, you know and, and all the accessories that go along with it. So they went out and bought themselves, you ready for this? An SUV. Yeah. They bought a Volvo XC90, which I thought was a little overkill. And and I said, what would you get that thing for? You know, there would have been plenty of room in in, in, a, in another CRV, you know, or, or maybe even a Prius V or something like that, which mm-hmm. would have given you great mileage. And his answer was, their answer was, it's safer. Right. You know, so when when when, when the scale tips... And more than half the people are driving something that gives them an edge. Then you have to decide to either stick to your principles and buy the little Prius, which is going to save the planet and, and all do all, make you feel good, or if you're going to save yourself. Right. And I think when you reach that tipping point is when you have kids. And yeah. You say, oh, my God, if somebody hits me and they're driving a 7,000-pound pickup truck, I want to be driving something that can take it. You know, all all those extra airbags and all the warning systems and automatic braking and all those things that lots of these SUVs seem to have. And then when you're behind the wheel, you kind of turn into a jerk a little bit, don't you? (laughs) Yes, you do. And so it turns into this kind of mutually assured destruction, right? I mean, that's what arms races end up in. What strikes me, too, is this whole thing of justifying driving a certain vehicle that guzzles gas for your kids is just, you know, this insane thing. I saw somebody on Twitter talking about this the other day. Like when people say like, I'm driving because because I have kids, it's like your kids are the ones who are going to inherit a dying planet among other things because you are driving this thing and how you can justify that by saying like, well, I have kids. It's it's just, it's so depressing. I, I The thing is, as much as I hate that philosophy, because I see what it's doing to our planet and to our, you know, our society, I totally understand it. I have built my life 
in such a way that I don't ever really have to drive. And that has meant some sacrifices, right? I live in a small apartment and there are some inconveniences about doing that with two children. And I could easily move to the New, Jer New Jersey suburbs and have a bigger space for less money. But I don't want to have to drive. But if I did move to that suburb, uh, I don't know how I would feel driving a Prius when I'm surrounded by an Escalade or a Lincoln Navigator. And so I, I can understand that. Now, look, I rationally, I know all the facts, right? Like there's, we've talked about how SUVs, you're more likely not just to get into a crash, but to actually kill another human being. And that is not a responsibility I ever want to take on, which is, like I said, why I've built my life around that. But if you live in those suburbs and you don't have a choice to, let's say, I, I can understand that philosophy. Well, but I mean, that's, that's just so American, you know, I'm not crit critiquing you, Doug, but like the, the whole thing of just like, I have to armor up myself. We know that SUVs, one of the reasons why pedestrian fatalities are increasing at such a rapid rate right now is because of SUVs. They have a higher front end profile. You know, when you get hit by an SUV, it damages your chest and your body instead of just, you know, breaking your legs or something like a car used to do. It's harder to see out of an SUV. Um, SUVs tip over more and are harder to control. Like everything about them is more dangerous and what it's really crying out for is some sort of collective action. Like you can't really end an arms race individually. It requires like sort of everybody coming together to the table and saying, look, like we don't all want to live in a suburb where our kids can't walk because everyone is driving around in an SUV. We want to live in a place where it's safe to walk and it's safe to bike and it's safe to drive cars. Let's figure out collectively how to solve this problem and regulate cars. <laughs> But we can't do that. We Americans can't seem to do that anymore. Okay, so let's get back to Ray. What what was his solution to this arms race? Well, yeah, so even though he gave into it and has seen this battle lost, like I said, these guys, Ray and Tom were radicals, and, and he had a really good answer to this question about what might have prevented this from happening. What's allowed this to happen, frankly, is how cheap gas is. Yeah. No, so our, our hope was, and we I don't know if we stated this ever publicly, but that gasoline would be seven bucks a gallon yeah. like it is in, in Europe. And the reason it's seven bucks a gallon or thereabouts is there's so much tax on it. And I said, well, what a great idea that would be to just keep in, keep increasing the tax a little bit every year so that people don't even notice it. Mm -hmm. So that we gradually get up to that level and it would force manufacturers to make more efficient cars, smaller cars, and wean people off this idea of having a six or 7,000 pound vehicle. Now, to be fair, gasoline could be $70 a gallon. There would be people that would drive sure. an SUV because their attitude is, I can, you know, and that that's okay. But but if we can keep the, their numbers small, it makes everybody else safer. Right. And and it's it's hard, but the price of gasoline has been complicit yeah. in, in, you know, proliferation of, of SUVs. I mean, so why didn't they talk about that more? Why wouldn't they talk about the gas tax on car talk? I think that's what bugged me about car talk in the end was that, you know, they were willing to take on SUVs, but they, they it would have really helped if they talked about the gas tax in the 90s and the 2000s. But they actually, so I don't know if they talked about the gas tax so much. And, and, and Ray says he wasn't sure if they had talked about it, but they did push back on automakers a lot. And I think part of that obvious is that they weren't on commercial radio or television, so they weren't reliant on 
Chevrolet advertising and sponsoring right. their show, you know, which is why we're able to spout off on the stuff that we're able to because so far we're not getting big because sponsorship we, from we like, get you know, no money, right? From exactly, but from anybody, um, but they, except for our listeners, yes, they were you, they Patreon. frequently took on the automobile industry. Um, we didn't talk about it too much, but I think in 2007 they wrote a letter to Congress when Congress was debating the new CAFE standards, I think to get uh, mileage up to something like 35 miles a gallon minimum. And they wrote in favor of it. And part of what they wrote in their letter was that every doom and gloom prediction that the automobile industry has ever had about safety, about fuel efficiency, about seatbelts. Yeah, seatbelts is going to kill the auto industry. It's going to kill, it's destroy sales. They were wrong. Um, And I think they said something to the effect of like, it's all been a bunch of bull feathers or something like that. So they were willing to, it's not bite the hand that feeds them because they weren't fed by the auto industry, but they were willing to take that on. So here we are, I'm being kind of critical of car talk. And it occurs to me, like, if we're lucky, if like we're actually successful with this podcast, maybe in 20 years, some young whippersnappers will be sitting there being like, yeah, the Warren cars was good, but you know. They could have been doing so much more. Well, yeah. Like considering what should, considering what, they'll be sitting in a refugee resettlement <laughs> camp while New York is flooded out, they will the, absolutely be saying these on, guys should have been the doing a lot more. Yeah. Trying to fight their way into Canada. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I mean... Yeah, so what should we be doing? What should media be doing right now? What I think that what Car Talk did so well was to create a community. Like, there was a real feeling of community. Mm. And I mean, actually, podcasts are a great way of doing that, but I do think that it has to be about emotion and acknowledging people's fears and pain. One thing that really bothers me about bike culture is that it's like can be this like purity cult oh, yes. where it's like, you know, well, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, if you don't ride your bike and, and ride transit and never do this and don't ever get in a car and all that. And I'm not saying that I think that tiny increments are going to make a difference, but I do think that opening up and being less exclusionary and being perceived as like a lot of people said to me when, when I told them that we were going to be interviewing Ray they were like, well, don't, you know, don't be mean to him. Like, how are you going to even talk to him? <laughs> like, they literally, they literally said. I was not said, mean to him. No, but I'm like, I was, literally. He couldn't have been nicer, yeah. I literally had a friend say, like, how are you even going to do that? How are you going to talk to him? And I think it has to be clear that we can talk to anyone and and we want to talk to everyone. And it can't be just like this purity test. And I think that's the perception and the reality a lot of the time. I'll give a great example. Speaking as a bike advocate, I sometimes will post a picture on Instagram of a a person riding their bicycle down the street. And I think it's a lovely scene or whatever. Inevitably, someone pipes up in the comments, her seat's too low, you know? (laughs) Right. And I think that that is exactly what you're talking about, that we can be our own worst enemies that, uh, you know, yeah, I think it's just like, guys, come on, you know, don't do that. Don't talk down to people. And I think that's really the beauty of car talk is they didn't talk down to people. Yeah. yeah. No, I th- the, I th- go th- ahead. Yeah I, yeah, I think it's like, really the key takeaway, I think, is is the empathy piece. And I, I've noticed that. Like, like sometimes I'll be talking to friends in our, you know, brownstone Brooklyn milieu here, which is like pretty, you know, well off relatively. And 
you know, a lot of people own cars and you tell them, oh, what are you working on? I've been doing a podcast called The War on Cars and people get really defensive. Well, I have a car, but I need a car. I mean, I do this and I have my kids and I go to work and, you know, it's they get they start to like make excuses. And one of the things I find myself trying to do is just being like, look, like I'm not trying to criticize you personally for owning a car. I would like to help people figure out how to live more easily without a car. Mm -hmm. Let's figure out how to get this albatross of car ownership off of our shoulders. Like, let's figure that out together. Because don't you acknowledge that, like, parking your car in the city is a huge drag, paying for your car is enormously expensive, fixing your car is a huge waste of time and money. I mean, there's all, sitting in traffic congestion in New York City sucks, having cars honking and spewing exhaust outside of your home is terrible. Like everybody sort of agrees that like all these things about cars are terrible. So it's not like critiquing you personally necessarily. It's just like having empathy and trying to change the system. The system. I think really that's what it's about. It's the system, man. It is the system. So on the empathy note, I mean, one of the things that we talked about, Ray and I, was that he, he bikes a lot. And I think that that informed his experience uh, on the show. Obviously, Tom, his brother, biked and took transit everywhere, and that informed his experience and the way that he would give advice. And here's what he said about, you know, where that empathy came from and and how it can be fostered. You said empathy can't be uh, taught. No. But you both seem to have this empathy for all kinds of other street users. Where do you think that came from? Well, that's because we're special human beings, you know? (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I don't know where it came from, but I probably had enough close calls on my bike that I realize that you have to be a little more aware when you're driving your car and there are cyclists on the road, you know. And my brother had a close call a day when he rode his bike. He was danger on the the bicycle. (laughs) He gave people the finger all the time. (laughs) 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 But but I I think that... uh, you know, when, when you uh, when you when you live in a city where people are riding bikes and, and cars, you got to make a special effort to be. You got to go that extra mile, no pun intended, to be aware of bicyclists as we are pedestrians now. And it's it's take reeducation takes a long time, mm-hmm. and and I'm sure I'm doing things to accommodate pedestrians and cyclists that my father would never have done. You know, and I would hope that my kids. And my grandkids will will take it a step farther. That's that's the hope. And not own or drive cars. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. Hopefully not in a seven thousand pound SUV. But I think what it takes to get kids to grow up with that empathy is to have them use those modes of transportation themselves when they're young. Instead, we're raising our children in these big metal cages so that they don't get hurt. They don't have the experiences growing up that build that empathy. Right. So I wanted to go back, Aaron, then to your tweets about why was Car Talk still on WNYC in New York and countless other NPR stations across the country. And back when you tweeted that stuff, that prompted an email exchange between all of us saying like, actually, that's not a bad idea. Maybe we should try to get some sort of bike talk type program going and and pitch it around and see what could happen. Yeah, I believe the specific tweet that started was, so how much money do we need to raise to get at WNYC to replace Car Talk with Bike Snob NYC? We, right. That was the original idea. Was yeah, it was going to be the show. Bike Snob show. Yeah. So I asked Ray, what would it take to make Bike Talk work? Like if there was someone was pitching a show today, uh-huh. two, three people 
who wanted to have a call-in show where people called to talk about bikes, what would it take to work? Or is Bikes or is, would have to be more complex. I mean, car talk and, uh, it survived because there were so many things that could go wrong with a car. You know, smells, noises, leaks, et cetera, et cetera. And then all the, all the suggestions about how to drive it. And when you're on your bike, you're autonomous, man. You get nobody in your ear saying, Doug, slow down, speed up, park here. You know, you're, you're on your own. Mm-hmm. So I think that all those conflicts that, that made car talk so successful would go away with bike talk. So it's, bike talk would be, be tough. Yeah. You know. All right, we're back. Now let's take a call. Hi, this is Sarah in Brooklyn. Sarah, Sarah in Brooklyn. Is that Sarah with a with an A or, or an H? <laughs> <laughs> That's with an H. Thank you for asking. Um, I'm calling with a question about how to get guys in bike shops to treat me better. Like the other day, I went into a bike shop and I was buying a new helmet, and I have my okay. bike with me, which is like. Well, that's logical when you're going sure, to a bike shop. Sure, yeah. logical, <laughs> logical. So, yeah, so I, I ride a Surly Crosscheck, uh, which is, you cross know. Crosscheck, nice uh, bike. It is a nice bike, and I have, like, these beat-up old panniers on it. I mean, it's clear that I've been riding this bike for a while, right? Okay, you're yeah. a pro. They should yeah. see that you know what you know you're You know what you're talking about. Exactly. Talking about. So then I go and I pick out a helmet, and the guy's like, okay, so let me tell you how to adjust this. There's this wheel in the back, and... And he like really condescendingly explains to me how to turn the little wheel. Oh sure, sure. sure. So, he's he's like, bike explaining you. Yeah, he's, he's, that's called yeah. bike explaining. So how do I stop it? Spoke. Let's explain this to Sarah how yeah. it works. Yeah, should we put this call on mute while two men explain to this woman how things work? <laughs> oh my god. Okay, so maybe that show is is not no, going to work. Yeah, bike after talks all. not going to work. It's not going to work. Terrible. They were singular talents, yeah. and we we yeah. we stand in their shadows. The war on cars, however, the war on cars is a good idea because it is much more complicated than how to fix a bicycle or even more complicated than how to stop a man from bike-splaining to you. True. And and it probably has a shelf life of like 50 years. I mean, it's going to take going to take a while to win the war. I don't cars. think our planet has a shelf life <laughs> no, of 50 years at this rate. We're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that happy note, that's it for this episode. If you want to hear more of my interview with Ray Maliazzi, we're going to put an extended cut up on Patreon for subscribers only. So go to thewaroncars.org and donate at any level and you'll get exclusive access. Many thanks to the law firm of Charlie G., Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, and the law offices of Vaccaro and White here in New York for their generous contributions. Help people find us by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any questions or suggestions, please send an email to thewaroncars at gmail.com or tweet to us at thewaroncars. This episode of The War on Cars was produced by Curtis Fox. It was recorded by Peter Carl. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Designs. Many thanks to Catherine Fenelosa and WBUR in Boston for helping us with this interview. I'm Sarah Goodyear. I'm Aaron Napperstack. I'm Doug Gordon. And even though Ray Maliazzi probably regretted ever agreeing to sit down for an interview with us, this is The War on Cars. The War on Cars. The War on Cars. All right, guys, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to do our, our full credits. Don't look at it. No. You're going to groan. But I had to go full, <laughs> I had to go full car talk here. Okay. All right, here you go. Ready?
My daughter helped me with this, nine years old, so here we go. Our show's payroll accountant is Willow Yamani. Crowdsourcing services and patron advice provided by Sharon Economy. Our jaded millennial interns are Ben There, Don That, and Karen About Nothing. Our standards and practices department is run by Lois Carmen Denominator. Our staff psychologist is Aiden Comfort. If you want to work with us, please send a resume to our show's HR coordinator, Hiram Forwork. Our in-house bike mechanic is Aaron DeTires. Our official helmet fitter is Lucinda Strap. Our sag wagon is driven by Anita Lift. Our tandem bike instructor is Amanda Ridewith. Our pedestrian safety manager is Walk Into Street. Our bus route planner is Ivana Getoff. Our director of bicycle advocacy is I Don't Want a Car. All podcast guests undergo rigorous drug testing by our in-house physician, Anabolic. And we have additional reporting on this episode by Siri Us News. Thanks so much for listening. Terrible. I, you can't, you can't terrible. replicate what those guys do. Oh you my can't God. do it. Man. Just be thankful I didn't do a puzzler. <laughs> a bit long. What time did we actually well, we start? Late. Yeah, we started late. Yeah.